0: And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stran and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay!
1: Hello! How is how is everybody in <laughs> Perth? Where it's it's a, it's the middle of winter and probably as warm as it is here in Chicago in the middle of summer.
0: What, you mean all two million of my best friends out there? Yes. They all seem to be doing rather well, uh, apart from the ones you can't afford to live here because it costs more to live in Perth now than Manhattan. Really? Twenty percent more. Really, that's astonishing. Yes. Perth is it's now like, the no- tenth most expensive
1: city to live in in the world. That just makes me want to come and hang out that much more. <laughs> yes, it, there's some
0: statistics that came out recently. They're quite horrifying, really, and, and it all has to do with change in population numbers and everything to do with um, the mining industry and all those sorts of things.
1: Mm. And yeah, it's really kind of I disturbing. <laughs> I mean that used to be the case with any kind of sort of colony cities. I mean Hawaii was a very expensive simply because of the transportation of goods. But I would have thought that efficiencies of scale would have solved some of that problem. I gather Hawaii is still more expensive than most places on the mainland, uh, but not really. And and the problem is that you know, we we
0: have a, a literally a, a jumbo jet full of new uh, residents arriving every day in mm-hmm. Perth. Which means that, you know, really, population is growing, infrastructure can't cope, uh, cost of eating out is incredible, cost of accommodation is incredible. You know, I've got friends who are getting to the point where they can't afford to rent a place to live. Hmm. So, yeah, it's, 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 (laughs) it's the downside of a boom, Gary. Well, at least you're in a prosperous
1: country. Well, that's true. At least we're in a prosperous country. I mean, one that didn't suffer the recession much at all, as far as I could tell.
0: Well, we were largely, although well, a lot of us were largely insulated from it, that's true, mm. uh, because of the whole connection with uh, China and the resources boom. And that strange right. echo that, that's caused by your iPad probably still having the volume turned up. No, the volume's turned down.
1: I'm checking. I'm not hearing any echo at all. I'm getting a slight echo. Oh. Okay. Anyway. Anyway, I'm back, uh, well, as our listeners know now from having listened to, I hope listened to two podcasts with delightful people, which we recorded at ReaderCon, um, that's still, despite a disastrous hotel situation, no pub and no lobby. I mean, essentially, when you walk into the hotel at ReaderCon this year, you are greeted with an enormous white wall (laughs) that extends all the way down to the restaurant. Um, How can you have a, con- and, and, a convention and, without a bar, Gary? Uh, well, they 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 tried nobly uh, to extend the small bar in front of the restaurant area, which normally seats 20 to 30 people, and they added a few chairs to it. They didn't add the 150 chairs they needed to add <laughs> to it. Uh, so there was some congestion from time to time, but I got to um, uh, see uh, see a lot of friends. There was there wasn't the kind of just running into each other conviviality that you normally have at a convention yeah. like that i mean every convention needs ideally a big cent- a big sprawling central pub they do not or 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 a big lobby bar area like hyatt's and and and, and marriott sometimes have uh but you can't get by with just a restaurant
0: no no uh, i mean the, the san I, jose I, hotel was always the best one for the bar i think that was excellent. That was a perfect location. Which, which, for listeners, basically, you would walk in the front door of this hotel. And there's an enormous, great, recent sort of drop-down lounge floor area, it was about three or four steps down, and there there's like dozens mm-hmm. and dozens of small tables, the chairs, all around it, and a couple of bars, and it worked out really well because everybody could sit and talk, and have a drink and while away a day, which is what we all did. I mean, one thing which you're going to have to do it. when you when you report in for um, uh, from from WorldCon uh, in late August. Uh, you'll have to let me know whether they have continued the greatest innovation in the history of conventions by having a bar in the dealer's room, the way they did in
1: um, ah, that, Reno. Yes, right. Um, I will let you know that as soon as I get there, and I'll be on a couple of panels, and we'll be trying to do some podcasts from there. The thing that uh, was disappointing about ReaderCon, our good friend Margot Lanigan was at her first ReaderCon on her yeah, way yeah. to teach at Clarion, and I had, we had dinner together. We saw each other, but it was... And I kept telling her, it's not usually like this. You know, it's really wonderful, and there's this open bar kind of thing. I think she had a good time. I think other people did as well. She didn't come on the podcast, so, though, did she? Um, no, but she was she, rather popular. She doesn't, she doesn't really like us. If, um, she, if she really liked us, she would have come on the podcast. Well, okay. Now, um, you, you said that. You know, I, I was, she didn't say to me she wouldn't. <laughs>
0: But she didn't say to you that she would. Well, no, but it was. And not she did somebody petty. else's podcast. I mean, look, listeners, I don't want to think you to think that I'm petty about this, but I mean, I really thought she would have come on a podcast, Gary.
1: Yeah, I probably shouldn't have spoken to her at all, should I? Nope, you should have spurned her like a rabid dog. Oh, but she's so charming. I know, and I delightful and <laughs> <It's> funny. <laughs> it would have lasted about a minute and a half. There you go. Yeah, right. That's the spurning. And, and, and she's. And the, the interesting thing, and I think that she's picked this up already because she's made a few trips to the States, is that it's a rare treat for a lot of people to see her. Oh, sure. Um, a lot of people that I, I Margo and I had met a couple of times before, but a lot of people there who were just huge admirers of hers had never had a chance to lay eyes on her at all. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is one of the things that sometimes happens at uh, ReaderCon. I had a couple of good pointed observations about the na- nature of ReaderCon. Um, yeah. But those went out of my mind like the night the night after I got back. Um, <laughs> okay, then. So well, should we just skip over ReaderCon as something that happened or, or, or is there anything? Well, no, I, I was going I, – I know what, what one of the insights was, and I've said this before. The ReaderCon is deliberately named for readers, and that is a way of letting people know that, you know, we're not going to be talking about media and gaming and costuming and yeah. art various things. It's, it's about reading, uh, which is fine. It's a little bit – there's a little bit of self-congratulatory attitude in that, as there is with any themed convention in that way. Yeah. The good thing about it is that there are – what what you realize if you're talking about nothing but basically fiction and books is that there are still many, many subgroups. Yeah. Um, and and you have large audiences, a great deal of interest in writers that might be dispersed otherwise. For example, you have – I, I, I was on a panel on Frederick Brown who was – they have a dead guest of honor or something. I can never quite figure out who all these you know, non-living guests are. But Frederick Brown was not the official dead guest of honor, but he was an official whatever. Yep. The room was packed. The room was packed with people who were, had enormously fond memories, some of them only having read one or two of the classic Frederick Brown short, short stories, some of whom um, had read his mystery novels and really knew his stuff inside and out, knew a substantial number of people who'd done that. Uh, we had a panel on, on my Library of America 1950s stuff. There were a lot of people in the room who knew the books. I remember a couple of years ago when Cecilia Holland, uh, the historical novelist and another friend of the podcast was there, she packed the room with people who had been Cecilia Holland fans for years. Um, and the same thing is true with almost anything. In other words, if, if you have enough people who are devoted to books, you're going to get subgroups who are interested in very specific writers, sure. very specific kinds of books. And that's always... Delightful. It's always kind of um, rewarding when you find, especially a writer like the last year's ReaderCon, Catherine McLean, who can go to a convention where a lot of people remember reading her stuff. That is a good and thing. I, and I it's a very good thing, and I have a feeling I don't know if she has any intention of doing it or if she's up to it or if she would be even remotely interested. My guess is if, if a Catherine McLean were to show up at a WorldCon yeah. or if – I were to organize a panel on, let's say, Frederick Brown at a Worldcon, it wouldn't get the kind of attention it gets at a place like ReaderCon. No, I think that's probably probably true. Though you, though you
0: wonder about um, World Fantasy. I mean, isn't World Fantasy just World Fantasy ReaderCon?
1: Aren't they just world about fantasy, the same? It's, it's it's very similar. And And one of the things that's interesting about World Fantasy is that despite the fact that the awards pointedly don't recognize science fiction, there are a lot of really good science fiction discussions that go on at World Fantasy conventions.
0: That's true. Even though, in one of the, one of the things that puzzles me, sort of, and not to segue away from Readercon to World Fantasy, as we sit around in the weeks before the World Fantasy ballot comes out, um, is that it looks as though a lot of um, British science fiction writers will, will not be attending World Fantasy because they see themselves as science fiction writers and not um, fantasy writers, which I find curious because I figure you just go to the convention, but that just may
1: be my blind spot. Uh, there are a couple of things. One is I think some people might might find it a hassle to get to Brighton. The other is, I don't think there have been enough world fantasy conventions in England for the culture to have become apparent that it's it's a, it's, a, it's an eclectic uh, democratic kind of convention where you can talk about science fiction or fantasy. I mean, there are people at, um, there are people at uh, ReaderCon and world fantasy that talk about horror. There's a substantial yeah. horror contingent in world yes. fantasy. Um, but was, there is the possibility also yeah. that science fiction writers are Sort of feeling slightly miffed that w- that we're not eligible for that award. Are Fantasy writers are eligible for the Hugo Award. Yeah. But science fiction writers are not eligible for the World Fantasy Award.
0: Yeah, but science. Is that? They just need to put their fair? they need to put their big author pants on and get over it.
1: Well, yeah, that's generally true of most <laughs> authors doing most things at most times. That's, <laughs> They're being mistreated by editors and booksellers and readers and, and convention organizers. That's the nature of being an author. So I if, guess... they were happy, if they were happy, would they be writing at all? I don't know.
0: I think it depends on the person. I've met some perfectly happy writers, I thought. I thought maybe I'm not very perceptive. I just, um, I just haven't told you the whole story. <laughs> that's always possible, I guess. You know, still, it just briefly occurred to me, maybe we should... Um, uh, set up, uh, get a table at Brighton, and rather than attend the convention, we could sit in the dealer's room and we could podcast live from the dealer's room.
1: Well, um, no. Um, we did that... I don't know where it was. In Columbus? Yeah, we... Well, we yeah, we did one,
0: uh, didn't we? We did one from we, Columbus, maybe, we from the dealer's room with Elisa and much. somebody else. Um... I apologise, somebody else, because it's just it's been a while. Well, a so Fran was there, and yeah, maybe Fran, yes, that's about right. Maybe Amelia was there as well. I could um, look it up, but that would be cheating, and you. It was interesting stuff. because it was one of the things
1: I imagined we might eventually do when we're doing actual live podcasts with you and I together, um, and and that is the we'll sort of set set ourselves up at something like the locust table or or, or some other friends table. And just do it like a celebrity radio show, and people will drop in and chat for a few minutes and drop out. Um, Like those old radio shows, back in in the 1940s, uh, there was a guy who I subsequently met who who did one of the first celebrity talk shows. And and he went down and set up his microphone at Union Station in Chicago, because all the Hollywood stars and producers and writers and and celebrities going between New York and Los Angeles had to stop in Chicago. Yeah, yeah. and it was, it must, I've never heard one of those shows. Now that I think about it, I probably would hate them. But still. <laughs> no, let's talk this this, this idea up, yeah. Because I was yeah, just thinking so about
0: all the ambient noise problems that we had with, uh, in, in
1: Columbus. Like our sound quality <laughs> is that good to begin with? I mean, what are we, we do generally we...
0: get sort of ambient conversation walking past and people selling books and all those other things in the background.
1: Well, they're not actually hawking books in the background, but... But no. Anyway, well, we can say we'll, we'll work that out. Well, well in, 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 anyway, people will people have a right to expect really exciting things to happen when we're in Brighton, and possibly even a couple of exciting things happening when I'm in San Antonio. Although you won't be there, unfortunately. I yes, I, I I've been very sanguine about not attending WorldCon
0: lately, largely because of Reno. I, I confess mm. it wasn't that I didn't have a good time at Reno; it's that I hated the convention really a lot. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we did some beautiful podcasts there and I did have some good time, but I hated the convention quite a bit except for the bar in the dealer's room. Mm-hmm. And that made it a very easy decision last year not to go to WorldCon wherever that was. Ricardo. Yes well, because and, was you, it- and, you, well, and because you spent not that the rest of the world knows this, maybe I shouldn't say it on the podcast.
1: Let's say you didn't encourage me that much. Uh, it was as disappointing as it would have been more disappointing to you than Reno was uh, it, it's in a it's in a giant what i think of as the the logan's run era of hyatt design yes uh with this massive you know atrium and yep. and, and, and and rooms the meeting rooms were like three floors below street level or something it was like you know, if, if it, we, we were talking i did a panel on science fiction i did a panel with gene Wolfe there and it occurred to me during the panel that if if Chicago were wiped out by a nuke, we wouldn't know that until the panel was over. We're so far underground.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, where's we, exactly. we went to Toronto, where the city was so far away, you know, if it had been hit by a nuke, we wouldn't have noticed because it, you know you couldn't see it from where we were.
1: Well, that's the other problem with the, with Readercon. For people, if people have not been to Readercon and are thinking about going. Don't fool yourself. It's not in Boston.
0: Yeah.
1: It's about a sixty dollar cab ride outside of Boston. <laughs> see and when I put. Brought- transportation- See, that's what changed.
0: When I went to Worldcon in Boston in 2005, Gary, it was actually in Boston.
1: And by in Boston, I mean like downtown. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the, and, and the advantage of the Worldcon here in Chicago is that it was right in, in, in downtown Michigan yeah. Avenue. but. Anyway, we're, we're, we're just really not getting started on here. No, no,
0: no. Here, no, no we're we're, we're going we're to sort of pick up. I, I will sort of make it There's a relevant segue because I'd said that we were waiting for the World Fantasy Award ballot, and we are, and maybe in a future podcast we'll get to discuss it. Uh, I also should point out that when this episode goes to air, we will be within a day or two of the Hugo Awards deadline. Yes. And I would always, and I think you might join me, always encourage anyone who's eligible to vote to please go out and vote for
1: whatever you love. And
0: put us second, because then we might have a chance. It, it,
1: no, it's a very good idea to remind people of that at this point, because we reminded them of the weeks ago, and I voted weeks ago, and I think most of the people we did. But it's happened to me before, and uh, sometimes at a great personal expense, neglecting to vote for the Hugo's and something. And the and the day of voting is over, and you think, oh, I sh- I should have done that. Okay. So with that. Okay. I, I've got a, another newsy related thing, I
0: guess, though. When, okay. Again, now that, now that we're at, you're changing our, our methodology, this will come out a week later, and that is that this week I announced, Gary, and I don't know what to, mm-hmm. to talk about this stuff here, I announced that my Best Science Fiction of Fantasy of the Year series is going to be with Solaris Books starting next uh, March, April. Congratulations. Thank you. I'm very, very happy and about still, it.
1: By March, April means the book will actually appear in March or April. That's
0: right. I'm not going to deliver it then. Uh, no. I will have to deliver it. I mean... Of all the things I'd want, well, there's several things I'd wanted to change moving into the future of the series. One was to move the time of year I had to deliver it, which was about Christmas. Mm-hmm. However, that's not to be, it would seem. There are all sorts of compelling reasons the world wants it to come out then. So at least the next two will come out around the same time. Uh, I've committed to doing two more, and if all goes well, um, Solaris are happy to do it uh, in, you know, sort of indefinitely. And they have an international presence, so we'll be able to get the book out uh, elsewhere in the world. It'll come out in the UK simultaneously, and so on and so forth, which is really great. I, you know, I'm very, very, very happy to have some actually on the ground
1: sales in the UK. So that would be wonderful. And yeah, that, yeah. Uh, and it makes it, it does make an international volume out of it. I guess they all have to be international volumes to some extent. Um, well, yes. I mean, but- if you if you go around the
0: I don't know how many of the uh, year's best are actually sold on the ground locally. Uh, I would imagine that, I mean, that, like David Hartwell's was, through when it was through HarperCollins, I, th- I think, I'm pretty sure that um, uh, Gardner's is, because I know he resells it in the U- UK, and I think, I think that the Horton, Rich Horton's book is i know that's through prime and i don't know what distribution they have in the in the uk Yeah, i'm not sure either whereas up until now my book's solely been available in uh the u.s except for the czechoslovakian editions
1: that's the one i was going to review how can you possibly keep me from getting hold of the czech edition
0: <laughs> if you ever see one i wouldn't mind i've seen i've seen a picture online <laughs> you know and uh, there there was talk of a russian edition so that might happen still so you know if you're ever wondering you know sort of how it all comes together internationally but yes so that's coming out and that's great um and i I would like to actually acknowledge the role that um jeremy lassen and jason williams and uh ross lockhart played particularly in the history of that book and marty halpern they all did various things with it so yes Mm -hmm. and you know the book came out, I think we might have discussed it earlier in the year, number seven, so that's nice. It's out just out in the ebook lately. See, see this is me hawking my stuff. I don't do well, on the podcast. I should stop.
1: Here's one of the things we could ask listeners, because I have my own opinion about this. Mm-hmm. For years, I was in the process of reviewing all the year's best. Yeah. Um, and and, and it, for a period of time, it seemed like they all came out in July and August. Yes. I mean, for a while at Locus I was reviewing uh, the – the year's best fantasy, the you know great lamented Datlow and Windling series, which was parallel to Gardner's series, and Gardner's volume, and then your volume started, and David Hartwell's volume started, and I think Rich's started a little bit later. Yeah. And so I had this mass, just from a practical point of view as a reviewer, I had 4,000 pages to read for that yeah. month's column, and I didn't like it. And I'm complaining because I'm getting a little bit of that effect now. I don't know how you guys read story after story after story and don't get overloaded. I'm feeling a little bit overloaded, but yet I'm feeling that having—I still have argued this, and I will continue to argue with my column—having at least three years' bests, especially with a couple of them combining fantasy and science fiction, is not a bad idea if they're spaced throughout the year mm-hmm. and if they're not duplicating each other in significant ways, which this year does not seem to be happening. Um, so this year, for example, yours was out early. Um, I didn't get riches until late, but basically it's. They're scattered over the first eight months of the year, roughly. Yeah. Maybe a little bit longer. I think Hardwell's may come out a little bit later this year. That not only makes it easier for me to read, but it means like every three or four months, you have a pretty good anthology of last year's science fiction that doesn't look too much like the previous one. And and we can we can all argue about whether you guys make the right choices, obviously. But most of the readers, I'm guessing most year's best readers, like myself, are not people who've read all these short stories in the original venues. We're waiting on your anthologies, depending on your taste and your judgment, hers and riches and gardeners and David's and Ellen's to tell us what we should have read last year because we didn't read it. And, And we spend a whole year not reading short stories because we know that six months after the year is over, we're going to be told what we need to read. And that's all we have to do. So thank you for that service. Well, look, delighted to, delighted
0: to assist. I mean, I, I would have to go back carefully and do some research as to work out the timing. I think part of, when I think back, okay, the key year's best of the last 30 years, obviously, is Gardner does once, yes?
1: 30 years this time. This is 30 the 30th years. One. Yeah.
0: And now, Gardner's first year's best when it came out from uh, Blue Jay, if I recall mm. correctly, came out at around the same time of the year, about June or July. Now, if you go back, there were two other years best being published at the time, the Donald Walheim and the Terry Carr. Right. Now, I don't recall when they came out. I don't know whether Gardner's was uh, published in response to theirs at a certain time of the year, but I'm fairly confident that the next major year's best to come along was the Dattler Windling. It came out traditionally in August. Yes. Which, if you consider that... That was probably structured as much around what St. Martins were willing to do, as it was structured around the fact that it was centrally managed by Jim Frankel, who owned the year's best packages, right? Because right. Gardner and Ellen and uh, Terry didn't
1: own them; they, they, went, they went through Frankel.
0: Yeah, he was packaged And everything. still does. And
1: sometimes uh, Ellen and uh, Terry. I think. The, I think Ellen told me this. she can correct me if I'm wrong. That sometimes. She and Terry just essentially did separate anthologies, and the arrangement of stories in some of them was Frankel's. That, that may well be true. I, I, I couldn't
0: comment to it. But I suspect that that was part of their relevant timing, relative timing. And then, yeah. I mean, the Hartwells always came out in about June or so. The way I got into it, I, I came in via the Silverberg Haber bests of the year, as you, you may, may recall, I uh, that, the- that I started uh, co-editing with Karen back in 2004. Yeah, or 23, uh, uh, Karen Haber. And at that point, those were timed at about the time my book comes out now. And they were timed deliberately by Byron Price and Marty Greenberg. So that they're, mm. b- because they're trying to establish a new series in what they thought was a competitive market, they wanted to make sure they came out first. Right. When Byron Price tragically died and iBooks uh, you know, became dysfunctional, um, I was pitching a new series to um, Nightshade, and one of the key considerations there was if you want to establish a new series, you want to come out first. Yes. So we came out in March, which is an ungodly time for it to come out, and increasingly an impractical time. I mean, I'd been pushing to move back to June because there are new considerations in the modern era that weren't there when I started in 2003.
1: I would suspect that that's generally true, that one of the reasons that July and August were the traditional dates when these began, uh, in Gardner's case back in the 70s, was that you, you couldn't expect to get e-copies of stories. You basically had to look at physical copies of magazines in many cases yeah. uh, to see what the stories were, which, which meant that, I mean, it, 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 for, for many listeners who don't understand how this works, I, I, the idea of you're having to submit a best-of-the-year anthology before the year in question is even done sounds nuts. But 30 years ago, it would have been necessary to see the December issues of magazines, probably in physical form. Look, uh, even 10 years ago, no, even
0: five years ago, it wasn't as nuts as it sounds, truthfully. Uh, Five years ago, everybody was still primarily publishing their short fiction in print. Five years ago, everybody was still primarily running on a print deadline schedule at least at least a magazine print deadline schedule now for those of you who are not familiar with it typically when a a magazine has a cover date on it that cover date is not the publication date that's the return date right which means it's depending on the nature of the magazine a month or three months later um which means that the magazine has been printed and done usually i mean like when you get to december usually uh, the the issue that's being sold that it's just coming out. The December, the December issue was actually available in about September or October if you wanted to ask for it. Yeah. And for anthologies, typically you know December anthology you'd be able to get an archive in you know, an advanced reader copy of in maybe May if you were lucky. So you could prepare yourself for the end of the year very well and delivering in. I mean I've 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 delivered year's best in the first week of october that would be the earliest i've wow. delivered it and that was a, a doable thing now you have online major online magazines and we have a number of major magazines that are online mm. i think anybody who argued that um clark's world that Lightspeed, that subterranean uh that apex that Beneath Seats of Skies are not major magazines in the field, particularly, uh, you know, Clark's World and Subterranean and Lightshade. If you argued there weren't major magazines, you'd be missing the point. Now, if you allow for that, if you go to sort of, uh, you know, when I'm trying to turn a thing in in December, I have corresponded with editors who don't know what's going into their December issue until the first week of December sometimes. Mm-hmm. Because it goes up immediately. It just goes up online, right? Right. And it's so a so invisible Frank process.
1: Harrison, M. John Harrison was talking about what it was like to have a Kindle single and suddenly your story is being read weeks after. A Absolutely. Couple of weeks just after just a while ago, finished. yeah. And
0: that is an issue which is very difficult to manage because I have a deadline and. I'm trying to balance contents, and I can tell you, people aren't always forthcoming with early copies. Sometimes they literally cannot, and sometimes they don't. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there's one magazine which is, I think, is supposed to be sandwiching three or four issues into the back half of the year because it's got none of them out this year, and I've not seen a word of them. And it's possible I may not get to consider them, so uh, mm-hmm. depending on how the world turns, you know. And there's there's literally nothing you can do about it, and that's why I had been hoping to move my you know, the, the timing till June or July, really. But I understand why that's not possible. And so certainly for the next two years, I shall persevere and we will push the envelope. And I will say to anybody out there who's listening, please send me your short fiction now. Really now would be good. Mm. Um, because it, when I go to the UK, I'll lose a couple of weeks there. So, um, you know, in terms of productive reading time. And I'm way behind now because you were talking about Onwe, Gary. Every now and again, it does set in, and I've been struggling a little bit. I admit,
1: I admit, to get myself I, focused. I, 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 I have, Well, I, and I'm just saying this now because of having read a thousand pages or fifteen hundred pages or whatever it is of of year's best in the last couple of weeks. There's a point at which I just overdose on. I, I'm not going to say I overdose on science fiction because what I'm looking at is not what would have appeared to be science fiction. 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, there's such a cross reading between steampunk and science fiction and mainstream and fantasy, but there, there's a point at which I just think I, I want to go read JD Salinger or somebody, I want to read somebody <laughs> where nothing odd happens other than the character being unhappy. Yeah. Uh, I did want to, Oh, speaking of, uh, of, of, electronic deadlines, I had one of a plug. And speaking of plugging our own stuff, uh, I was contacted by Neil Harrison, the day after I got back from ReaderCon uh, about putting up my essay, uh, Evaporating Genres, on Strange Horizons. And I thought, okay, that's fine. I don't have any problem with that. I should check with Wesleyan University Press to publish the book. And I did, and they said fine. And and then I had to find a clean electronic copy of it to send to him. Mm-hmm. But you know, within three or four days of his first request, it's by the time people listen to this podcast, it will be on Strange Horizons yes. website.
0: Um, well, well, the other thing will be happening online, Gary, is we're we're, we're moving into 2006 on the Code Street Podcast. Mm-hmm. You might not know this. Yesterday, guess 2006. what? 2006. 2006. Yes. Well, I don't want to pretend that we're we're actually up to date when we do this because the truth is that the Code Street Podcast, Gary, I think you might agree, is a ramsh- ramshackle cottage enterprise. We, we, yes, it is, and
1: it's getting more ramshackle as we continue this discussion, because I actually had a topic in mind, which we might... We'll have get been. to it. We'll get to it. We'll, we'll get, get to, to it. it. Trust okay. me. Just just, just bear with me. Okay, okay, uh, okay. Now, I say
0: ramshackle because really, we, sh- the, you know, the podcast should sit on coodstreet.podbean rather than myname.podbean, and we should have coodstreet.com, and you should be able to buy the t-shirts that we made uh, or made available, but we aren't organized about that, and we should promote the books that we are discussing on episodes of the podcast everybody can find them and be all organized and all that stuff which means really what we need is not only an audio producer but probably a webmaster because we could be an industry gary but we're not going to be um but i did yeah, just just this morning i started a, a pinterest board
1: gary for us i got the i got the thing I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to how to and, and pinterest wants me to wants me to subscribe to disney princesses and i don't want to I don't know how you... How do you get into... <laughs> you have to select five boards to follow or they don't let you go to the next screen. It's like I know. Disney princes, Disney just just like click it and move along. Can I do zombie Disney princesses? That would be I'm sure okay. You, I'm
0: sure you but, could. Just, just any old thing. But uh, one thing that I'm going to try to do, is, and you should do too, is pin on the trip Podcast Books of 2013 board... Um, the books that we've re- that we've read or discussed or enjoyed or recommended during the year so that we've got somewhere for people to go to check that out so i've just been putting up a few things like you know ocean at the end of the light lane by gaiman or sophia Samatar's stranger in a laundria or paul macaulay's evenings empires which just came out in mid-july so only just out so mm-hmm. which actually is a little a partway segue gary Yes. I have a partway segue, so bear, bear with me, because this is, might begin to get us towards your discussion point, but we'll see. Um, I was r- looking on Paul McCauley's blog, because, of course, everybody has a blog now, apart from you. And mm-hmm. I could set up a blog, and you could blog on the Coot Street blog, Gary. We could have a Coot Street blog. Would you blog on the Coot Street blog, Gary?
1: Well, yeah,
0: no, no probably you not. So you said, what would be the point of that? Okay. Anyway, rather than disappoint me. people by putting up the Coot Street blog and having nobody blog on it, though um, so we can work that out, uh, I would point out that when I was reading it, uh, the, Paul was talking about the new book coming out and everything else, and he pointed out that neither In the Mouth of the Whale or the Evening's Empires are available in the U.S. or likely to be available in the U.S. Really? Yeah, they have not sold into that that fine country. Which, given that just very recently, like literally within the last week, I was saying that Paul would rank amongst the, the top handful of science fiction writers working today, seems surprising, but it touches on an issue. And the issue is... Why is it that some science fiction is more and fantasy is more successful outside the the U.S. and than it is within it? Why is it that there are these major writers who struggle to develop a reputation in the U.S. People like Paul McCauley, obviously.
1: Uh, I think uh, that's a very interesting question, and, and and my guess is it has maybe has something to do with the changing market, with the change. It seems to me Paul McCauley years ago had had a following in the united states um and i'm not sure that uh, his his foray into thriller writing the white was it white devils was that it yeah yeah. okay uh i'm not sure that was very successful i'm not sure it's i'm not sure it was the wisest direction for him to take once he started working on the quiet war series which is a major series of mm-hmm. the, of, 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 of early 21st century science fiction and i actually liked evening's empires better than i liked in the mouth of the whale mm-hmm. uh something happened i mean it seemed to be harder and harder to place those things in the united states i think interestingly enough and ironically enough one of the places that would welcome novels like that and like m john harrison's empty space was nightshade yeah um and and that's no longer an option the major publishers i'm not sure what the problem is but it strikes me that they're doing a kind of science fiction which is really rare in the united states um among domestic writers On the other hand, I would assume, uh, without knowing any of the figures, that Peter Hamilton does perfectly well in the U.S. I would assume that's true. Del Rey have published
0: him regularly and reliably throughout and Mm -hmm. seem to continue to do so quite happily. So yes, and I assume, though I don't know this, that Alistair Reynolds continues to do well for Ace. Yeah.
1: um, But there's always
0: a batch of these things. I mean, Paul's books were coming out from – I want to say it came out from Bantam. I think, you know, sort of through the – certainly through the 90s and on. It sounds and then right. they went to tour for a while. Hmm. And then they dropped out and there was a gap when I don't think his stuff was coming out much. And then it was coming out from Empire and they did the first two of the Quiet War books. In fact, they may have yeah. done – I'm not sure if they did the first edition of the Quiet War uh, or one of them. But um, now, that you know, the latter two books in the series aren't coming out. Uh, as far as I'm aware, there, there are 2 ebook co- collections of Quiet War stories – but uh-huh. neither of those have had any print um, edition. The, ver- you know, the m- most recent one only just coming out. And then there was the major retrospective collection that uh, PS Publishing did, which I don't see anybody likely to pick up for the trade oh, market, So, so.
1: unfortunately. Now part of that may be packaging. Part of it may be the fact that, m- uh, that Macaulay, like a lot of other writers going back to Heinlein, Developed a series of stories and, and, and eventually novels around The Quiet War, but that's that's not easy to package. When you talk about mm-hmm. The Quiet War series, which most of us first read in short fiction, um, and, then you, and then you got uh, The Quiet War, and then you got In the Mouth of the Whale, and eventually Evening's Empires. Had those been packaged as some kind of a trilogy, it might have seemed more marketable. But ironically, a series—a a series which includes which includes a number of stories and a number of novels, not with a particularly predetermined overarching arc, isn't marketable as a trilogy or a quartet or whatever. And, and maybe the American market is just so enamored of trilogies and quartets. Look at how look at how angry Americans get at George Martin. Well, no, everybody gets angry at George Martin. Well, you um, can't get angry at George Martin. He's writing good novels as long as it takes for him to write them. But people get angry at him because, hey, George, if this had been a trilogy, it would be over by now. What's the problem with you? Well, yeah. Um, but I was just thinking that you – know, I mean we talk about Paul McCauley, but
0: uh, M. John Harrison, Struggles to Get Published in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Gwyneth Jones, her most recent book, hasn't come out in the U.S. at all. Uh, um, you know,
1: although, although Farrah Mendelssohn has pointed out that there it's very difficult for women writers to get contracts in the UK as well these days, fantasy or science fiction.
0: That that may be completely true, I don't know, but uh, it does seem, though, there's this – I mean, the start has it's always been there somewhat, but it's surprising, and I was surprised, having noticed that, noted that. Uh, and noted that we're a substantial waste through our recording now. Um, you, had a, you had a subject you wanted to talk about, Gary. Well, yeah, Before you even it, start, I'm not sure I've got anything.
1: Just in parentheses, since my review of it is already out, people should try to track down Evening's Empire because it's delightful. Oh. Well, as Paul points out, it's
0: readily available to anybody who likes dots of ink on pieces of paper. Well, yes. It's, it's only problematic to acquire if you would like pixels on a screen. Ah, because really? of course, well, at, this is the the, okay. the joy of retro technology like print, Gary. Mm. Uh, anybody in the world will sell you a print copy of the book, no matter where it was published, but they can't sell you the electronic copy. So, anybody in the United right. States, hello, all 300 million of you, or as I like to think about, six of you who are listening, um, if you you know they, you can go online to Book Depository or Amazon or your favorite book retailer online or whatever, or you can even probably go down to. In fact, I'm sure you can go to any. Respectable specialist SF retailer in your area, people like Borderlands in San Francisco or whoever, and I'm sure they will have the book on the shelves or get it for you very quickly. The ebook you can you, you know you can only get online from British ebook retailers, and they cannot technically sell it to you, and they yes. actually set up so you mate so it will not work for you. You'll just get a sort of not available in your territory answer. So yeah. So if, as okay. long as you don't want an want electronic copy, you can get Evening's
1: Empires, and you should. The entire series is terrific. As soon as this civic emergency passes my window, I hope... They're stopping. Oh, great. They're going to stop outside my window and not turn the siren off. No, no, no. That's obviously the, the sound of sort of the, you know, the British, the American science
0: fiction scene sort of collapsing in horror at its own insensitivity was formal it
1: could very well be there well there, there, there's a problem there I, I, and I would like to know what it is and maybe we can talk about it at some future time with, with some British and American publishers we should be talking about publishing distribution okay, my okay. question was this my question to change topics <laughs> which <laughs> to finally change to my topic two thirds of the way through the podcast it,
0: it, it, was it, it didn't take us this long because I've got no idea how to answer this question but continue Gary
1: <laughs> okay I was, uh, at, at, at ReaderCon, I was doing some, um, make, doing some videotapes for a publisher which, uh, once they're available, I, I, I can mention this because they may not use anything that I said, but they were asking good questions, and they have ebook rights to a lot of interesting writers like most of Octavia Butler and Theodore Sturgeon, and one of the questions that came up involved, um, well, it didn't, the question didn't involve this, my, my response uh, involved this, um, I, I started talking about Joanna Russ, as we frequently mm-hmm. have on this podcast. The question was, what science fiction novels really, science fiction writers, the question was, really changed your attitude toward either being a critic or a reviewer, or, or the way you read the genre? And the first thing that came to mind, literally, um, I don't know why, was Joanna Russ, because as a reviewer, she was very funny, she was very acerbic, she was, she developed high mm-hmm. standards. She wasn't the first one to do that, but... Uh, at, At the right age, when I was thinking about writing reviews, I thought, I want to do that. But the other thing was this. The other thing, and this is my question. My question is, is it absolutely true, as many of us advocating the genre and defending the genre and supporting the genre in the face of, in my case, academic disdain, is it really true that science fiction can do things that other kinds of literature can't? we've heard this for decades i was james gunn one of the guests of honor at worldcon this year has said this for 50 years now um it's been repeated as one of the cardinal defenses of the genre and nobody's really asked okay how would that work and okay now now i'm going to relate that question to what i said about joanna ross uh, which was completely spur of the moment. Which I'm saying this now because I'm sure that these people at, at the publishing company, if they have any sense at all, will not use this part of the tape. Mm-hmm. In 1975, um, I think it's about 1975, when The Female Man came out, I read that. And about the same time, or maybe a couple of years later, a mainstream, hugely best-selling novel by Marilyn French called The Women's Room also came out now of the two novels the women's room was a phenomenon there were groups there were women's groups all over the country talking about there were women who had not read any serious novels about feminism at all Um, and suddenly they were electrified by the novel and it's a it's an electrifying novel i have not read it in 30 years probably but the message it seems to me or the world portrayed by the women's room which Marilyn French herself argued was not about the women's movement it was just about the condition of women was that things are really bad uh the condition of women is, is way worse than you thought it was uh, men m- there there are nice men out there but by and large it's, just, it's it's a bleak almost dystopian novel except there's nothing imaginative about it of the two novels so I read the two novels probably within a year of one another And now, uh, decades later, it strikes me that what Joanna Russ did in The Female Man was something that Marilyn French could not do in the women's room, as powerful as that novel was, because Marilyn French could say, things are really bad for women in America, which is what she was talking about. Joanna Russ, with her essentially four, I think, four different scenarios, could say, things are really bad. Things can get worse things could be a lot better, and things could just be a lot different. In other words, she can lay out all sorts of options, all sorts of possible, um, at least philosophical, routes of action that men and women could take in a way that Marilyn French couldn't because Marilyn French was confined to representations of reality and Joanna Russ wasn't. Maybe, but but let me um, posit... response because i'm
0: attracted to the idea just because of my personal prejudices that science fiction Mm. can and does do things that uh mainstream fiction does not however in in your example uh where you have this uh strong realist novel about uh women's issues and then a very strong science fiction novel about women's issues
1: Mm.
0: couldn't you have achieved the same effect but but um by, say, setting the real sections at different points through time up until the present day. In other words, did you not achieve the the the, the, the same effect, not because of science fiction, but because of your choice of the
1: story you, you I, went to tell? It, 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 yeah, and, and that's an absolutely valid criticism because it wasn't a choice. These are two novels I haven't, I happened to read within a couple of years one of the the female man is much more vivid in my mind now than uh, than the women's room is. And I am saying this as somebody who is not in any sense whatsoever well read in the history of feminist fiction. Uh, I I, I read things that that people told me to read and things that looked interesting. And I'm not not even saying that Marilyn French is is, is a bad novelist. I mean, I I could have probably chosen Saul Bellow versus I don't like you could choose John Dos Passos versus. You could put, well, you could put you, well, okay. You could put pick, and you've mentioned this
0: off off podcast, and you may record, mention it now. Mm-hmm. You could put pick any two dystopian examples. Yes. Uh, and I mean, yes. and I realize that there's dystopian elements to those the books you've been mentioning. But to step us away from those particular examples, you could mention uh, dystopian examples or some other form of fiction. It's certainly just those ones you have to choose. Um, and the question is, I don't know. I, I, I don't know, Gary. I mean, I'd like to think so. Certainly, when I look at a book like, say, 2312, mm-hmm. I think it, it does things that structurally most novels wouldn't attempt in the mainstream. But I, I, and I don't know whether the reliance or, or use of you know, a sense of wonder effect is something which is more commonly looked at in science fiction than it is in mainstream
1: fiction generally. I think the sense of wonder is a separate kind of aesthetic. I think that yeah. works in science fiction. Occasionally it works in, in mainstream fiction, but not often. I think one of the things that I started thinking about um, was uh, – uh, Something that James Gunn used to say regularly, and I've heard him. I've, I've heard him on more than one occasion. And, I, and, and he was my first teacher in science fiction ever, so I have an enormous amount of respect for him. But his mantra was, science fiction is the literature of change. Yeah. And that was also Asimov's mantra. That was a classic mantra of that generation of people. And I thought, okay, that's, yeah, but it's not true that it's the only literature of change. Almost all historical fiction is. The literature of alternatives is what I'm getting at. Yeah, okay. Joanna Russ could show alternatives. 2312 is about a colonized solar system, which is one among many possibilities, but within the narrative itself, and with even within the gender relations aspect of the narrative, there are enormous amounts of alternatives. I mean, throughout Stan Robinson's work, there's a sense we have choices to make, and choices will have specific consequences, and my fiction is about those consequences, uh, especially in something like the Capital Trilogy. The, the example you were talking about with dystopia uh, was one. Was the second one I thought about. Because again, two novels that came out within eight years of each other mm-hmm. were Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon, which is really about Soviet oppression of dissidents. But it doesn't mention the Soviet Union, that Stalin is not mentioned by name in it. It's, it, no. it, it's an abstracted horror story about, uh, about repression and brainwashing and so forth and so on. Um, it has, at its core, the same basic theme, the same basic argument as Orwell's 1984. And the, the most frightening thing about 1984 is not that people are spying on you. It's not even that people are trying to get you to uh, subject yourselves to the state's, um, to the state's will. It's that the state wants you to agree with them. They don't want you to simply submit. They want you to agree. The most mm-hmm. the frightening thing in 1984 is that Winston Smith, at the end of the novel, loves Big Brother. He agrees with Big Brother. Yeah. He's not just going along with it. He agrees. That's exactly the same theme of Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon. And Darkness at Noon is probably a better novel than 1984. Darkness at Noon is probably one of the great novels of the 20th century. And I don't think, from today's perspective, it's as powerful as 1984 is. Yeah. Because 1984, by being set in an indeterminate future, is about an alternative. 1984 suggests very clearly that this can happen. This is this is still within the realm of possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that, that a realistic novel with almost exactly the same basic theme can't really do. People who read Arthur Kessler today read this as a nightmarish novel of Soviet oppression. Yeah. Which it is. Um uh, people read 1984 even though 1984 itself is what almost 30 years in the past yeah, now yeah. read that still read that as an awful warning yes yeah no no I, I can see the point
0: i absolutely can um but but i you know i look at a a recent science fiction novel or something or, uh and i try and see you know i have to ask myself is there something in there that you can't do is it a matter of setting because, I mean, I mean, the exploration of alternatives is, is a very tempting argument, and I'm very attracted mm-hmm. to it. Uh, though maybe, maybe more in science fiction than in, in fantasy, say?
1: Oh, I think more in fine. Yeah, I think definitely more in science fiction than fantasy. <laughs> um, fantasy can make political statements, but usually chooses not to. Well,
0: I'd see, that that's an interesting sort of point. I don't want to sort of bounce off yours too quickly. Uh, but, but I might put to you the suggestion that actually what you've got there is... Um, Fantasy embody you know, basically embodies its political systems, whereas science
1: fiction talks about them. That's interesting. You That's know. very interesting because it is certainly one of the one of the differences which I've suspected about between science fiction and fantasy is that science fiction talks about things a lot, and fantasy tends not to. Fantasy tends to, as you say, embody the system; it tends mm-hmm. to present the yeah. system.
0: So, so, I mean, in, in that regard, I mean, I mean, fantasy, this is so going to be very careful of this because this isn't uniformly true, is maybe a little bit less talky than, than science fiction is. And science fiction is maybe a little bit mo- more overt about exploring its examples and everything. But when you put together an enormous structured universe mm. and you run stories through, through them in epic fantasy or whatever else. You cannot not have a political point of view in them, even if you don't d- discuss them overtly. You know, you can't say the Lord of the Rings doesn't discuss a particular pol- political point of view in its expression of uh, you know, you know, the, Mordor and the Shire and everything else. Similarly, you can't. I you mean, know, I think you'd struggle to say that's that's not true of A Song of Ice and Fire or whatever else, yeah. or the soon-to-be-concluded um, st- you know, Thomas Covenant series, or whatever. It's just no, it's, that it's not at the forefront of what they're talking about, but it's there. It's not at the
1: forefront of what they're talking about because, in, in a sense, fantasy does not need to do one thing that science fiction needs to do. Science fiction needs to show us how we get from here to there. Yeah. Fantasy, you walk through a damned wardrobe and you're there. There's, <laughs> it, it, you know, you, you, you Nine Princes in Amber, I still love this. Nine Princes in Amber, you simply get out and get your car going really fast and pretty soon you're in amber. Um, you drive to Amber. <laughs> it. Um, it well, it's, it's there, boring, and, and, and once you're there, you don't ask how you got there. That's what fantasy can do the science fiction. Unlike yeah.
0: the crushing hard science fiction of Edgar Rice Burroughs,
1: where you just go lie down and fall asleep in a cave to get to another planet. Well, yeah, that's that, true. You, yeah, you, but I don't think, for that same reason, I don't think, um, I'm not sure. I'm, uh, I don't know if I want to defend the statement. Or not. I'm not sure that fantasy could do, for example, what Cory Doctorow is doing. Uh, with little brother, for example, or with um, the second one, the um, um, I'm blanking on the title of the second one.
0: Oh, hang on, why not? Why not? I mean, uh, what you, you, okay, there, Corey's writing with with uh, Homeland and with Little Brother. He's writing these stories, hmm. uh, telling Homeland, stories yeah. of uh, what uh, y- young adults who are trying to th- uh, sort of uh, kick back against the uh, political, the current political situation using modern technology, right? Uh huh. Why couldn't you set it in a secondary world where they're using you know where you know young people are kicking against any generational change and it doesn't have to be um networked futures
1: and uh IT, it could be some other element. Because I think I think Corey has in mind that he wants his readers, especially his young readers, to recognize that this is a situation that they are in right now. This is not hypothetical. This is where they are living. This is this is in their. You know what's going on in his novels, or what's going on in their computers and on their iPhones right now. Uh, he doesn't want to make it abstract. You can you can obviously represent any political system mm. abstractly in terms. Sure, sure. But if you're trying to if if you're trying to eliminate that metaphorical step where the re- reader has to go from from your work to connecting it to their lives. Uh, I think he wants to eliminate that. I think he wants to write genuinely political novels, really of the sort that science fiction has been a little bit lax in writing over the last uh, two or three decades. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about, uh, that I know what Corey's intentions were, but I think he wants to write activist novels, and an activist fantasy novel demands an extra step of the reader that um, – that somebody who wants immediate political action doesn't want to make the reader go through. Yes. No, I think that's true. Okay. I'm convinced. So, well, I'm
0: not convinced at all. <laughs> I've got two examples. I mean, if they, if they're. I don't know. A... I don't know. Okay. My, my problem with the argument that science fiction does things that no other form of literature can, and I can think of a few people we should talk to about this rather than me. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for that. You agreed very quickly.
1: I'm okay. Not, I'm
0: not, <laughs> It, it, it's a very self-congratulatory science fictional kind of statement or science fiction community statement to make you know well, it's awarding a special snowflake status uh, that may not be
1: entirely justified the question is not does science fiction do this okay so my my argument my argument with the the mantra science fiction is the literature of change yes or science fiction is the only literature that deals with the impact of science those things have struck me as being utter nonsense ever since I first heard them mm-hmm I mean, basically, there's very little literature that isn't about change, and there's a lot of science fiction that, that isn't about change as well. Um, the idea that science, not, the, not so my question is not, does science fiction do this? It usually doesn't, but can it, in certain circumstances, do these things? Um, and I think that it, I think there's a capability. Well, hang
0: on, no, I think in fairness, the full, the full extent of your question is, can it do that, and can mainstream fiction not do it? Yeah. B- I guess because that's because because then you know there's the question can literature do this? And then there's the question can only science fiction do it, right? And that's where I'm not sure. I think that I think science fiction probably does it more often than liter than the mainstream literature does it in general. Though I wonder if you were to look around at some of the big sprawling experimental novels out there in the world, whether they do the Don despasos books and things, um, yeah. you know, but does science fiction do it more typically as, as, as a more normative thing for it? And I would say maybe because it does so overtly examine um,
1: alternatives. The alternatives is, is what uh, I keep coming back to, that it, it can present more than one alternative. And and can generally do it fairly well. And when science fiction fails to present more than one alternative, when it presents a kind of totalizing future, it's going to be like this and it's going to be really horrible. As in a lot of dystopian fiction. And a lot of dystopian fiction is not necessarily science fiction. Mm -hmm. or By not necessarily science fiction, I should say not necessarily allied with science fiction traditions. Then sometimes you end up with very persuasive, very convincing stories that are weak science fictionally. Yeah. In other words, simply, uh, and, and, and the example of that, uh, in my mind, is the Hunger Games trilogy, which are very good. And yeah. the movie, the one movie is very good. But science fictionally, it's really hard to figure out how we get from here to there. Yeah. Or it's yeah. hard oh, to believe. Oh, any no,
0: oh, you, you can't. It's completely... Uh extrapolated from our world, so separated from my world, there's no realistic way you could get from here to The Hunger Games, just as there's no realistic way you could get here, from here to Logan's Run.
1: Well, that's probably true as well.
0: Because I mean, I, I'll just say very quickly, to me, uh, the, the, those two works have always seemed remarkably similar. Really? Uh, in, in a kind of st- conceptual style or approach, um, That they're this abstracted-from-reality isolated, unbelievable oh. kind of concept that's run through. To me, The Hunger Games is a very 70s kind of a story. Very 1970s kind of a story. It seems that. yeah,
1: That's a good point. Uh, and to be honest, I never read Logan's Run, but I saw the movie. hmm And my sense is that as soon as you said that, I thought, yeah, if you take The Hunger Games and move, instead of a forest, it takes place in a Hyatt Regency hotel. You're pretty much in Logan's Run, aren't you? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, really, and, and could you ever see? Could you ever see
0: it happening? I mean, honestly, really, um, uh, someone's trying to extrapolate from I don't know ancient Rome or something. Uh, the number of hundreds of years you'd have to put between us and it to make it happen make it all a bit implausible.
1: Seems to me. But well, that's just me. It could be. I mean, it's. Um but uh, I, I guess when when sudden fearful changes appear in society that we recognize, such as in the United States here, you know the disclosure um, by the guy Snowden that uh, the hmm. government has been basically monitoring all our emails and phone calls like forever, and why that should surprise us at all. But what happened was um, the, the the idea of government monitoring, of massive computer systems monitoring our Communications. As a matter of fact, that's another Paul Macaulay novel. It is from Wide. Was that Wide Wide World? Yeah, I think so. Um, But it's not. People are going. People are not going to find that old Macaulay novel. What are they going to? The the sales of 1984 jumped something like 8,000 percent after that news story came out. (laughs) And yet nobody
0: points pays attention to the fact that it's the UK that is the most surveilled city on uh, nation on earth. Yeah, exactly.
1: Which was which was. what Macaulay's novel was all about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He was simply um, Paul Macaulay, in that novel was something which it probably still isn't dated. It's been years since I've read it, but you know he was doing the sort of thing that the Cory Doctorow has been doing now, um, and that's what I mean about when when something radically seems to change in society, or more accurately, when people realize that something is happening in society that they had not previously realized, they try to they they tend to go back to science fiction works that that might have talked about that before because realistic fiction um the surveillance society has been with us for quite a while now it's oh yeah, been with yeah, us no yeah longer in the uk than than it is i don't know how bad it is or how extensive it is in australia but it's something that rarely shows up in any kind of mainstream fiction that yeah. i'm aware of uh, i would imagine that we are electronically no less surveilled
0: than anywhere else uh, though there, there's Less face recognition, sort of camera stuff sitting around everywhere. I mean, that, that, that's the thing that, that throws you—you know—that's that, disturbing about the you know, the UK stuff, where you mm-hmm. know, any, any street you walk down, there's a camera that's got face recognition software loaded onto it that's tracking you from spot to spot to spot. That's there's kind gate of
1: recognition funny. that can, can identify you by your pace. Yes, yeah, I know. Um, that's just astonishing stuff. Mm. So, and I, I guess this is the sort of thing. And I'm uh, again, I, I re re-emphasize what I said at the beginning. This is not that science fiction always does things, but that these are issues that are much more likely to be addressed by science fiction than by any other kind of fiction.
0: True. I think it's true. But I also think
1: that we've got to the end of our hour, Gary we have we have we made it i'm sorry no no (laughs) all right it's it's, it's a good thing too because that idea i had was not going to last more than two or three minutes longer (laughs) before it fell apart (laughs) no no it's it's a good well you needed somebody who's more able to come back at you more robustly
0: maybe but but we will maybe come back next week um and we will maybe by the time we meet again we might have world fantasy nominations and even if we don't we should have a a lovely guest because we've got all sorts of people we're talking to about coming on don't we
1: Yes, we have lots of possible guests, and somebody will somebody will come and talk to us soon. I'm sure. Probably not Margo, because you're right; she doesn't like us.
0: That's true. That's a bit bit, bit, of, a, bit of a downer ending to the podcast, Gary. Thanks for that. No,
1: she really likes us. She just I don't know. So with her in camera,
0: friends, but she
1: wouldn't come on the podcast. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Next time we, uh, we, uh, we we'll track okay, we her, we we'll her on camera. We'll get her on the podcast. But at the moment, we we can we, can, we cannot say anything bad about margot because at the moment as we're recording this i believe she's been teaching a week at clarion That's which great. is a very trying thing for any writer to do
0: I, sh- I should also sort of and i know you would share this quibble with me gary i don't know that i can actually find anything uh, negative to say about um margot at all given that she's a lovely person and a wonderful writer and i mean i had, just as you had dinner with her recently i had dinner with her in april and had a lovely time so yeah it's just that she doesn't come on a podcast
1: there are a lot of people who don't come on our podcast.
0: We're watching you all. and yeah,
1: we have we're list. watching you
0: all. We have a yeah, list. We have... Exactly. <laughs> 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 all right.
1: Next Enough of that.
0: That's a, this has been a, a crazy one. Okay. Um, next, next week we will talk about something else with somebody else. We, we're not going to say whom because we have a few people in mind who are seem happy to talk to us. So hopefully mm-hmm. we'll find something interesting and timely. As we begin the rundown, we're about four weeks out from Warcon. And the Hugo Awards and all those sorts of things.
1: And about twelve what, twelve weeks out from World Fantasy. Something like that. Alright. Which right. we just got Something so like much
0: organization y stuff to do, it's gonna be insane. Uh, so to be until then. Now as always, Gary, I will talk to you next week. And we're the Coon Street. Oh dude, oh, come it's- on. It's- it's- you said that all the time. Why know. it's what's his faces thing, you know. Uh, Jonathan McElmore who called Thank us you, the, the, the Mullers of Cood Street. And then he thought, well, that's oh, a bit that's insulting. And Because it kind of is a bit insulting, I thought. And then, um, or I was a bit insulted at the time. And I thought, oh. no, no, it's kind of cute. And no, then no, you get to, to use it as a sign-off. And it seems to work. And so you can say things like, and now, as always, we remain the Mullers of Cood Street.